I know for a fact that we have a handful of listeners who are listening to us uh, from hospitals around the country and other locations. So, uh, you know, yes, if you... station, maybe one day it'll reach to Cuba. I don't know, man. Maybe there are other people in Cuba who can, can hear. It, it I mean, can do it on, uh, on the Internet and satellite. Yes, you the, yes, you can you can hear us worldwide for now. One day, maybe they'll give us more wattage. I think Trump is annoyed enough that he might give low-power radio maximum power just to get his foot in the door, considering the, the mainstream medium isn't going his way. But you can listen to us on wsqfradio.com forward slash live and uh, check us out there worldwide. And you can also uh, listen to us on radio.garden and look for the, the island of Kibiskane with like a, the Google map. And that's more of a like a commercial live stream service where we're listed there and put in the search engine if you can't find the little green dot. Sometimes it doesn't appear, I noticed. And uh, you search Blink Radio, keep a scan, and we should pop up. So here locally in your car, it's WSQF 94.5. And uh, you're going to be using up the toll-free line, you too. So I won't talk about the toll-free. And let's uh, do this show for Teresita Romero Cambo. 1931. Yeah, 1931 to 2020. Take over, Adam. So what we're going to do, and you actually kicked us off on a good uh, on a good starting point, Manny, when you mentioned the lion's claw. So let me get everyone back up to speed on where we left off last week. So last week we introduced this topic, and I'm going to make the argument tonight, and we started doing it last week, that one of the most important letters, and people can have different opinions, but one of the most important letters in American history, I argue, is the cover letter for the Constitution. And we mentioned last week how, you know, until I stumbled across it when I was looking through some old law books, these were the, the statutes from the first Congress where it was mentioned in that book, where it was copied. So and I'm going to ignore any calls coming through. But uh, what I'm pointing out to you is that until I saw this cover letter, I'd never heard of it. So I've now realized that uh, there are a handful of historians who refer to it as the Constitution's cover letter or the forgotten cover letter. So last week we talked about why it's important, and we talked a little bit about what it says. And I'm going to point out to us tonight, building on last week, we're going to go into who wrote this cover letter. And we, we framed the conversation last week by describing how the Constitution had a committee of five, which was called the Committee on Style, or the Committee of Style. And there were five members of that committee. And that committee produced the penultimate, that's a fancy word, but the second to last right before final, so the second to final draft of the Constitution, or the penultimate draft, was created by this Committee on Style. And they weren't making changes to the substance, because that had been agreed to by the, with more background, the Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia between May and September, and they finished on September 17th. And this was in 1787, the famous Constitutional Convention. So other committees, and the committee at large, had finalized the Constitution, but they handed the work over. There were 23 articles that came out of the Committee on Detail. And the 23 articles, they had to make sense of them all, blend them all together, and that job was given to the Committee on Style. And the Committee on Style, and uh, either of you want to mention some of the members of the committee, uh, included Gruvner Mars, and next week we'll talk about Gruvner Mars. Uh, the other members of this committee were William Samuel Johnson, who went on to become the president of Columbia University. He was the oldest of the members on that committee. Then you also had, uh, next to Governor Morris and Samuel Johnson, you had two of the most famous members of the Constitutional Convention. And I'm hearing some background noise in the background. That's Ed, 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 are you eating Doritos back there or what? <laughs> no. 
Come on, are you chewing to, are you chewing tobacco or beef jerky? What's going on? Because people can see me on the camera. They know I'm not chewing anything. It's Ed. Put him, <laughs> put him no, in timeout. I'm out to you. There were five members on the committee, and I'm asking if anyone wants to throw in some other names. But, but think of the, the most famous founders. You want to give some other names who was on this committee on the James Madison? James Madison. So James Madison's on the committee. Who else? Uh, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. Is that, the, is that the lion? That's the lion. That's the lion. So we're going to build into that. So there are five members on this committee, and the committee takes the 23 articles that have been voted on and, and produced during, remember, this is the entire summer, from May all the way to September. So this committee of five takes the, the final, you know, the, the 23 articles and combines it into the seven articles that we have today, which constitute the Constitution. And it is universally acknowledged, and I can quote from some of the, the letters and some of the primary sources, that it was primarily Gruvner Morris, who was the penman, if you will, of the Constitution, that uh, he wrote, for example, the preamble. And we mentioned last week at the preamble, and the preamble is the beginning of the Constitution, and uh, there's, there's poetic language in the preamble about how we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. So he is the one that gets credit for doing the preamble and then codifying or, if you will, simplifying and rearranging the, the, the polish and style of the Constitution came out of this committee. But the committee, for purposes of today, did something else which is important, which is it drafted the cover letter that would be signed by George Washington, and the cover letter sent the Constitution from Philadelphia to New York, because New York is where the Constitution where the Congress used to meet, the Articles of Confederation. It was called the Confederation Congress. So the Confederation Congress is meeting in New York, and the Philadelphia Convention, where the Constitutional Convention was, after they finished their work on September 17th, and there's a famous picture, and here I like to point out, go to the website, statutesandstories.com. So you're listening to us, presumably on the radio, and this is the WSQF radio station, so you can listen to us on the radio. You can also go to the website, statutesandstories.com, and that's where I come in, because I blog about American history, and on that website, you can go to today's show, and uh, every couple weeks I do another post about American history. So if you wanted to follow along, you can see a lot of these materials that we'll be talking about are on the statutesandstories.com website. So we're talking now about how this Constitution was sent from Philadelphia to New York, and there's a cover letter. And the cover letter was signed by Washington, and it was generated out of this committee. So the question that I'm teeing up is who wrote this cover letter? And we can argue about, well, does it matter who wrote the cover letter? Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> we'll talk about that. So the cover letter was signed by Washington, but we know Washington didn't write it. It was a product of the committee who created the penultimate version of the Constitution. So um, I use this analogy when I wrote about the post. And Hamilton had a nickname, and his nickname during the Revolutionary War was the Little Lion. And, of course, a lot of folks know that Hamilton worked very closely with Washington. And Hamilton, uh, remember back in the day, they didn't have typewriters, they didn't have uh, electronics. So there was a lot of correspondence that had to be created if you were in charge of the Continental Army, because Washington was really reporting not just to the Confederation Congress, but he was reporting to the 13 states. And the different states had their own, and back then they were still colonies, but they had their own militias, and they had their own armed services that were united in the Continental Army. So Washington had a lot of people on his plate. And I may even give you the number, but the, it's a large volume of correspondence that was generated during the war, and a good amount of that writing was done by Hamilton. So Hamilton was referred to as the pen of the Continental Army. He held the pen in his hand. He did a lot of the writing for Washington. So where this premise begins is 
you know, who would Washington have wanted to write the letter for him that he's going to sign, and why does it matter? We'll talk about it. So getting again to the, 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 the expression that we left off with last week, there, there's a famous expression, Ed, I don't know if you wanted to help again with the, with the, with the Latin, uh, but in, 16, in the 1670s, there was a famous math calculation or a math competition. And uh, long story short, uh, Sir, this is Newton, who, of course, was responsible for figuring out gravity and the apple falls on his head. But Sir Isaac Newton was the one who submitted the solution to this math problem, and he did it, uh, and they, they figured out who he was. And the expression was, they figured out who he was by the lion, you know the lion by his claw. So here we're trying to say tonight, being a little poetic, that we know, and this is how we described it, that you know who the lion was who wrote the Constitution or who wrote the Constitution's cover letter by his claws, by his fingerprints. And that's the question that we're going to be doing tonight is how do we figure out, how, how can I go out on this limb and say that it was Hamilton who wrote this letter? And the first jumping off point is that Hamilton wrote a lot of letters for Washington. So it's logical that Hamilton might have also written this letter for Washington. But that's not enough. And let me tell you the burden, if you will, that we have to overcome. And last week we talked a little bit about what the historic record is. So what records did we get out of the Constitutional Convention? And I won't re repeat that from last week because people can go to the, the website and you can listen to last week's show. But what it boils down to is there was a, a good period of time where we didn't have any records. And part of that was that the Constitutional Convention met in secret, and it wasn't until after James Madison dies, he dies in 1836, and it wasn't until 1840 where his notes of the convention were published. So the convention ends in 1787, but we don't get the notes of the convention until 17, until 1840 is what I said, 1840. So there, there were pits and pieces that sort of bled out because people with uh, diaries would get released and letters. Now, were these, were these notes uh, published or how would they get out to the people? That's an excellent question. So when Madison died, the, uh, the notes that he kept and he polished them over the years and he'd improved them and rewritten them and tried to clean them up. But uh, they were published in book form. And that, that's really the starting point for the for the historians, because until they had Madison's notes, there was a lot of speculation about what actually went on with the debates. And I'll point out to you, and we mentioned this last week, that there was a journal of the Constitutional Convention, and the journal only kept track of what the votes were. The journal didn't go into the minutia of the speeches and the details of who said what. It was really Madison's notes. And the good news is that a lot of this is all available online, and that's what I quote on statutes and stories, because it's you know Madison did a wonderful job of sitting real, really close to Washington and uh, keeping diligent, diligent notes. And and every night during the convention, he would go back to his room after he'd eaten dinner, and he'd uh, you know, repackage and rewrite his shorthand into notes. So that's and he did this for basically four months. And these are the notes that we didn't get published until, as I said, 1840. So here's the problem. The problem is that we only have one handwritten draft of the cover letter. This is the five-paragraph cover letter that we're talking about, signed by Washington on September 17th. So it was printed, and it was put in newspapers all around the country. And there were about 100 newspapers of around the 13 colonies. And with in the first two or three weeks, almost every single newspaper published the Constitution and the cover letter. So people knew what it said, and back then it wasn't a secret, you know, and it was signed by Washington, so everyone assumed it was Washington's letter. But in the, in the records of the Constitutional Convention, we have one handwritten draft. And the handwritten draft, which has edits to it, is probably in the handwriting of Bruce Morris. So the issue becomes, well, Levinson, if you're saying it was written by Hamilton, that Hamilton was really the author of the Constitution's cover letter, how do you get around this problem that the only draft we have is in Morris's handwriting? So this is going to get into what I describe here as the Hamilton authorship thesis. And I'm curious if Ed wants to, to weigh in from the perspective of a lawyer uh, expressing skepticism. So the, the, the big 
you know, burden that I have to overcome if I want to convince people is, well, if the only copy we have is in the handwriting of Morris, then certainly Morris was the one who wrote it. Yeah, that makes, that makes, that's, that makes absolute sense. And the person who made the, the claw comment uh, was an outsider, so it could have been just an opinion. So that's right. So people will have different opinions, and historians generally assume it was Gruber Morris. So let me get into some of the reasons why, just because the draft is in Morris's handwriting, hmm. I, don't, I don't think he wrote it. And I'm going to give a whole host of reasons, which is what the website does. I go into great detail, and I, I sort of set it up using the jury instructions from New York. Well, who, uh, wait, who's, got, who's known to have better handwriting, Morris or Hamilton? Because that would be the answer right there. They just, I'll give you the rough draft. You got better handwriting than me. You write the final draft. I wrote it. But uh, my handwriting's uh, a bit of a scribble. Hell, that that occurs between you and I today. You know, the person with the better handwriting does the final draft. So in those days, they prided themselves on their penmanship. So everybody had good handwriting. That's right. They both they both had Hamilton had excellent penmanship as did Rupert Morris. So in order for me to overcome this barrier or this burden, if you will, this presumption, you know, if it's in Morris's handwriting, you can presume he wrote it. And my my thesis, if you will, is that yes, he copy, right? And this was a working draft, which had edits to it. And part of this argument tonight is going to be that Hamilton did not want people to know that he wrote it. And we're going to get into the reason why Hamilton didn't want it to be known. And let me tee that up a little bit. So remember, there were 12 states that attended the Constitutional Convention. Rhode Island didn't send anybody. And New York only sent three delegates. But of the delegates that were sent from New York, Hamilton was the only one who was a nationalist. The other two delegates from New York, which is King, I'm sorry, the other two delegates are Lansing and Yates. Lansing and Yates. Uh, they, they were really on, under marching orders from the New York governor, Clinton, uh, that they did not really support amending the Articles of Confederation. They were just going to make minor changes, and they certainly did not support doing a whole new constitution and a new federal government. So they, they were anti the project, if you will. They were anti-federalists, whereas Hamilton was the only federalist on the New York delegation. And I'm going to give examples of, of why that makes a difference. In fact, Yates and Lansing wind up leaving the Constitutional Convention in July, leaving Hamilton as the only New York delegate. And he's the only one from New York who signs the Constitution. So you figure that Hamilton didn't want the New Yorkers to know that he had uh, authored the uh, transmittal letter. Exactly. So part of this thesis, and I've got a whole bunch of reasons I'm going to get tonight, was Hamilton knew that he needed as much of an arsenal as he possibly could, because more than any other delegate, he knew that when he returned home, he was facing an uphill battle. I'm going to give you some quotes, by the way, about the opposition that Hamilton was facing. In fact, in July timeframe, after the other two delegates leave, leave the convention, Hamilton starts writing articles in the New York papers, criticizing the New York governor and saying that he's prejudging, they haven't finished yet, and the New York governor's already made a clue that he's opposing their constitution, even though they haven't finished it yet. So Hamilton's already engaging in a public relations campaign. This is in July. They don't finish until September. So he no. knows he's got an uphill battle. Okay, but, remind, but yeah. uh, pl uh, please remind the audience, because you, you said it in part one last week, what was the real gripe in New York about joining the Union? And even though they were in support of the revolution and all that, but why did they have uh, doubts about the Union staying together? Uh, I mean, it was pretty known that the 13 colonies didn't necessarily get along. They each had different businesses, rights, and wealth. But what was New York's gripe? I think it's important that the audience understand why New York was such a, and still is, a pain in the you-know-what uh, to the rest of the states. 
So, so Manny, we could do an entire hour talking about New York in 1787. But what it boils down to is Hamilton believed that, um, and remember, the governor back then was Governor Clinton. And Governor Clinton was a wartime governor during the Revolutionary War. And Hamilton was convinced that he wasn't really interested, meaning Governor Clinton and the Anti-Federalists. And that's a name that would later stick. Back then, they didn't call themselves Anti-Federalists yet because uh, they would eventually, you know, as, as the ratification process went on. But uh, long story short, Clinton was, was really just concerned about New York. He didn't care about the other states. And there was some concern in 1786, 1785, that there might be a war breaking out. Mm -hmm. Real serious disputes between New York uh, and some of the other areas, uh, there was a, a controversy over Vermont. And Vermont was originally part of New York. So there were territorial disputes, there were commercial disputes, there were issues about debt. And uh, the argument that Hamilton was concerned about was that Hamilton was a nationalist. You know, he came from the Caribbean. He was interested in all of the country. He wasn't just interested in peculiar, selfish interests. And Hamilton was convinced that Clinton and some of the other New Yorkers were really just worried about their own position, their own jobs, uh, feeding off the trough, if you will, of New York taxes, as opposed to putting money into the federal. Part of the problem was that soldiers hadn't been paid, there were war deaths. So this was it's a disagreement, and there, we can't resolve it tonight. But suffice it to say, there were legitimate differences of opinion between um, you know, the governor of New York, who was really focused like a laser on just New York issues, and to the exclusion of other national interests. So Hamilton thought that we need to surmount those differences and we need to unify the country as opposed to being focused on, let's call them, what's the word for it, local or, or you know, smaller scale issues, so parochial issues. So that's a little bit of the background. So let me skip over to, we talked about how two of the delegates from New York, who were the only other two delegates with Hamilton, they left. So Hamilton is the only New York delegate. He's the only one who signs. And Hamilton realized that he was going to face tremendous opposition. So in Hamilton's mind, and there were letters where you get to see this, he knew that he needed the popularity and the credibility of Washington on that signature. And if the news got out that it wasn't Washington's letter, that Hamilton had written the letter, and that's one of the reasons I give why Hamilton did not want people to know that he wrote the letter, which is why it makes sense to me that it would have been in Morris's handwriting. And again, it's just a working draft. And when the Constitutional Convention ended on September 17th, they burnt and they got rid of a lot of scraps and other versions. So it's not, uh, not a surprise then that Hamilton wanted to keep it confidential. And we didn't learn about this until 1840 anyway, uh, that uh, Hamilton would not have written it in his own handwriting, or at least would have gotten rid of the version that he may have originally drafted. Or a possibility is that he just spoke it to Morris and Morris copied down what Hamilton was saying. And we'll get into more of the weeds. So let, let's... Was that, was, that com was that commonplace or no? Uh, and you know what? We're never going to know one way or another. But at the end of the hour, I'm hoping, once I walk you through some of the, what I'll call the, these bits of evidence, these fingerprints of why I'm going to argue tonight that we can see Hamilton's fingerprints. We can see that it was the lion by his claw, by, by the claw prints, if you will. So that, that's the argument I'm going to try to make tonight. And I invite people, go to the website. Don't take my word for it. StatutesAndStories.com. And each of these is based on a link where I'm referring to a letter from Hamilton to Washington or a letter from Hamilton to Morris or campaign literature. Because remember, the Constitution had to be ratified in each of the 13 states. And uh, Albany, uh, there, we've got literature, campaign literature from 1787 uh, from Albany and from Poughkeepsie. That's where the convention was. So there are ways you can connect, which is what I'm going to try to do, connect the cover letter to Hamilton. And I refer to that as his fingerprints. So let me get into more of the weeds now, and you'll jump in and tell me if you have questions. 
So again, this hypothesis is that there were five members of the committee, and it had to have been one of the members of the committee, and most historians assume it was Gruvner Morris. I'm making the argument that Morris may have been involved with the process, but he was very busy writing the Constitution, writing the final draft, of the, the penultimate draft of the Constitution. He didn't have the time to do this, right? And they did it in a, in a very short period of time. It was during four days, basically, is when they finalized the Constitution. They come up with this letter. There were also resolutions that had to be produced by this committee on style. So Morris had a lot on his plate. So it had to be one of the five. It had to be Morris. It had to be Hamilton. It had to be Madison, Johnson, or Rufus King. So why do I say it was Hamilton? So let me walk you through a little bit of this. So let me give you a quote by Catherine Bowen, who's a famous American historian. And she refers to the cover letter as, quote, a most skillful and touching document which breathes confidence in what the convention had achieved, makes no apologies, but tells the seriousness and humility of just what such a convention of diverse states felt it could and could not do. So this historian, Catherine Bowen, is complimenting the letter. And if you look at the letter, and I'm going to talk now a little bit about style, if you look at the letter, most historians, including Gruner Morris himself, uh, Morris was, was very concise, he was very articulate, and uh, when he wrote, his writing style was to use as few words as possible. He didn't use commas, he didn't use a lot of semicolons, but when you look at the cover letter, and if you go to the website, you can see this. So the cover letter has a total of six commas, and it's only five paragraphs. It has six commas, it has, I'm sorry, semicolons, it has six semicolons and two hyphens in only five paragraphs. So it's not the kind of writing that you would expect from Gruber Morris. Another quick observation is that none of the poetry, if you will, of the preamble, none of the, the, the concise, uh, you have to put them side by side. The cover letter is written very differently than the way the Constitution is written. And Ed, this is maybe a question for you. If you had written the preamble and you'd written the cover letter, you might think that the cover letter might refer to the preamble. You might expect to see a connection between the cover letter and the underlying document, if you want to talk about that real quickly. Well, then none of that is present. So let me get Ed's opinion on uh, it. Well, I agree. I think somebody like uh, Morris would have tried to convey the same themes in the uh, transmittal letter that he had already expressed in the preamble. And uh, I, obviously he was happy with the preamble. And I think in, in a letter that was trying to sell the Constitution, he would, uh, he would use the same salesmanship. That's an excellent point, and I completely agree that if I had written the cover letter, I would connect the cover letter to the preamble to the document which is going to follow. But there's no connection. There's no, there's no parallelism. There's no continuity between the cover letter and the, and the Constitution and the preamble. So what else can I use? And I've got a whole list of arguments that you're going to see. So now let's, let's begin by saying that – let me give some quotes here. Historian Forrest McDonald, a very famous American historian, and the book Enough Wise Men, the Story of the Constitution, describes Morris's draftsmanship as brief, to the point, and clear. So you would expect if Morris wrote the cover letter, it would be brief, to the point, and clear. That's the way McDonald describes Morris's writing. And historians universally agree that the cover letter of the Constitution, right, uh, they all think it was drafted by Morris, right, and Morris did a great job with the Constitution. He made it succinct, these are quotes, polished, written with grace and style. That's how historians describe, that's William Peters in the book, The More Perfect Union, describes the Constitution as succinct, polished, and written with grace and style. But when you look at the cover letter, and this is where I'm going to ask you guys for your opinion, do you think this cover letter is succinct, polished, and written with grace and style. So let me give you some examples. So the word interest is repeated four times in the cover letter. It's only five paragraphs, and the first paragraph is just a quick introduction, right, saying that we're 
you know, conveying the Constitution. So the first paragraph doesn't even count. So it's really only four paragraphs. And the word interest is repeated four times. The word situation is repeated three times. The word safety, rights, magnitude, expected, and most are each repeated twice. So there's a lot of duplication and redundancy in that couple letter, and I'm making the point, and here I'm going to quote Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow says that Hamilton was brilliant, but at times he could be prolix. And the word prolix is just a way of saying that it can be very ver very wordy, right? So mm -hmm. when you look at the cover letter and you see the repetition of these words, including at least one word four times, one word uh, three times, multiple words, multiple times, and let me also give you some of the phrases in the cover letter, right? And then the argument is that what I'm going to read to you now are not uh, Morris phrases. These are Hamiltonian phrases. So the phrase long seen and desired, when you see long seen and desired, Right, long seen and desired. That's basically redundant. You've long seen it this way and you've desired it. But here's another expression, fully and effectually vested. Fully and effectually. You don't need the word effectually. Fully and effectually just means fully. He uses the expression, uh, our situation, extent, habits, and particular interests. That's verbose. That's wordiness. That's Hamilton. That's Hamiltonian because he's speaking to convince people. That's not Morrisonian language. Here's another example. He uses the, the phrase prosperity, felicity, safety, perhaps our national existence. And, when you, and I say these on the radio. It's hard to see it. But if you go to the website, you'll be able to see it. these are words that are redundant and they're emotional. And these are words that are they have an impact, but they're not the kind of style that you would expect from Gruvna Morris, who is priding himself on being concise and being precise, right? Here's another expression. Seriously and deeply impressed on our minds. If something is seriously impressed, you don't have to say seriously and deeply impressed. Another one, mutual deference and concession. Deference is the same thing as concession. You don't need to use synonyms one, one after another unless you're trying to make an emotional argument as opposed to a legal argument. Right? I'm going to just give you one more. We hope and believe. Right? What does believe say that hope doesn't say? They're, they're very similar words. You don't need to use them, especially together when you're being redundant in a five-paragraph letter. So here I'm beginning by making the point that there's a lot of the, the technique and the style of the letter doesn't align with the Constitution, doesn't align with Groove Memoirs, but is the kind of language that we're going to show later is very consistent with how Hamilton wrote. So what else? Let me give some more examples of why I make the argument that Hamilton wrote the letter. And this is uh, one of my favorite examples. The letter uses the, the expression spirit of amity. Let me repeat that again, spirit of amity. And today we don't really use that word amity, but amity means friendship and collegiality. So the, the cover letter is trying to make the point that there was a spirit of amity or brotherhood and sisterhood at the convention because they made compromises. Some of the compromises were good and some of them were necessary. We could debate about some of those compromises, and some of them were horrible. When it came to slavery and the three-fifths compromise, those were horrible. No question about it. But there was a spirit of amity, which the cover letter refers to, which is that the states came together and they agreed and they hammered out over those four months the Constitution. And the reason I think this is significant, spirit of amity, is that Hamilton was a member of what was called the Society of the Cincinnati. We talked about this last week, and I asked Ed, Ed, you want to just tell us real quickly what was the Society of the Cincinnati? It's a group of uh, American Army officers who had served with George Washington in the Revolutionary War, and George Washington was compared to Cincinnatus, who was a Roman farmer who, in the time of a military emergency, was given dictatorial powers to uh, lead Rome during the emergency. And then once he successfully dealt with the emergency, he resigned and returned to his farmhouse. And so all the Romans were, were amazed that he had given up that kind of power.
And George Washington basically did the same thing. Right. So the name of this society, and it was a group of army officers, as long as you could serve for three years in the Continental Army, it's a way for them to maintain their bonds of brotherhood and collegiality and, and comradeship. And one of the themes of the Society of the Cincinnati was amity. And I mean, my thesis here is that Hamilton was tying into, he's trying to get support from all the army officers and from members of the Continental Army or members of the Society of the Cincinnati by using this word, spirit of amity, he's locking into and he's sort of capturing the the, the motto and the message of the Society of the Cincinnati. And uh, that's something that Hamilton would have done because he was very involved with organizing the society. So what are some other examples? When it comes to style, and, and this is a word people will not have heard before, but it's called stylometry. And when you look at the Federalist Papers, for many years there was a debate. Which of the 85 Federalist Papers did Hamilton write? Which of the 85 Federalist Papers did Madison write? And then John Jay wrote a handful of them. He got sick. And they, they used different techniques to figure out who wrote what. And a lot of the original copies were destroyed. And this is no different. You look at the writing and you try to figure out who wrote and what are their signature fingerprints, if you will. And one of the ways you can look at these stylometric analyses is word length and the kind of words that are used. And when you you look at the, I did the counting on my own, the average sentence in the cover letter is 62 words in the sentence. That's the average sentence. So there are some that are more than 62 words, some that are smaller than 62 words, but the average sentence is 62 words long. That's not how Gruber Morris writes. That's how Hamilton writes. He writes very, I, won't, I don't want to you know, characterize it, but you know, he writes long sentences with semicolons, and uh, they've got lots of adjectives and some might say redundant use of, of uh, similar terms. So it, it's Hamilton writing style when you look at the cover letter. So what else can I give you as examples? And it's important to point out that, uh, and I, I use the example now of, I, I want people, if you go to the website, uh, to be dispassionate and to be critical, right? And because the cover letter was written in Philadelphia but mailed to New York, and because New York was where Hamilton was from, where he didn't, wasn't born there, but he lived many years in New York, added the group Morris. They were both New Yorkers. I give the New York jury instructions. Instructions. So I say, use the New York jury instructions to figure out if you're on a jury, is this a letter written by Hamilton or was it written by Matt, by Madison or by Rupert Morris? And uh, here I'm going to give some quotes about Michael Newton is a historian I happen to like. He's a specialist on Hamilton. And he points out in one of his books called Alexander Hamilton, The Formative Years, that by the end of the war, and I mentioned this earlier, some 12,000 letters, orders, and reports filling 24 volumes were written by when I say written by Washington, they were signed by Washington. That's 24 volumes of correspondence during the Revolutionary War, plus an additional 5,000 documents or orders and letters were signed by Washington's aides, mainly Hamilton. So that tells you how much paperwork was generated during the war, and Hamilton was one of the primary draftsmen of these letters during the war. So I, I start off now by going into this new system. I'm going to give you four arguments. The first argument is that Hamilton would routinely write for Washington. Second argument is that the other members of the Committee on Style knew this and knew the problems that Hamilton was facing in New York. So Washington would have written, would have wanted Hamilton to write the letter. Hamilton would have wanted to write the letter. The members of the Committee on Style were very familiar with Hamilton. They knew what he had been doing for the last 10 years, all the letters that he had written, all of the, and back then he used to write, uh, we could talk about different terms for it, but 
back then you'd get published anonymously in papers. And if anyone saw the musical, uh, some of the songs in the musical referred to his former refuted essays written in 1774. He wrote the Continentalist essays in 1782-83. So he writes a whole series of essays, uh, and I'm going to go into some of the examples later. Uh, and let me give some more examples about how during the war, Hamilton and Washington created this relationship. So here's a quote from another historian that I like, and this is uh, Knott and Williams. And, uh, and Knott is a professor at the Naval War College. So this is a quote from one of their books. Problems of supply and organization plague every military commander, but they were particularly acute for George Washington because of the weak Congress and the recalcit recalcitrant states. So uh, this is Knott and Williams are making the point that Hamilton was is very important for Washington's correspondence to make sense and to be convincing, and that's how Hamilton would write. So before Hamilton joined Washington's command staff in 1777, is when Hamilton was put on the, you know, the, the, he was promoted to be one of the aides to Washington. So before Hamilton was promoted, there was a famous letter that Washington wrote to Joseph Reed in 1776, where Hamilton, this is Washington rather, Washington says it's absolutely, quote, necessary for me to have people that can think for me as well as execute orders. So Hamilton needed aides who could think for him and write for him. And uh, there's a famous quote by Robert Troop. Robert Troop was one of the other aides who worked with Washington and Hamilton. And Robert Troop, and I give the quote so people can see this on the website, uh, famously said that the pen for the army was held by Hamilton, and for dignity of manner, pith, and matter, and elegance of style, George Washington's letters were unrivaled in military annals. And I encourage people, if you want to read Washington's letters during the war, uh, they are they're very impressive, and we know who wrote many of them, and it's Hamilton. So Washington later, we, and we also know that Hamilton wrote the farewell address, right? And you know what? That's an excellent point. And we spent an hour last year talking about the farewell address, and it went through various revisions. Madison wrote the first draft because Washington was thinking about resigning and stepping down after four years, not running again, I should say, but he decided to run again to do the eight-year term. And Washington asked Hamilton to write the farewell address. He gave him the, the prior version for Madison, and Washington says, look at the Madison draft. If you want to change it, do whatever you need to do. And, um, you know, Hamilton made changes to the Madison draft, and then he rewrote it, and he gave Washington the choice, which did you want to use. And Washington and Hamilton worked on it very closely. But the point is that that was a closely held secret. Hamilton never let anybody know except for his wife. It was only years later that we figured out that it was Hamilton who basically wrote, with Washington's assistance and input, the, the version, and that's an excellent point, of the farewell address. So Hamilton could keep secrets, which is one of the things we talk about during the Post. So here, let me just give more examples about how close Washington and Hamilton were. Hamilton was referred to by Washington as, quote, his principal and most confidential aide. Let me say that again, principal and most confidential aide. So who do you think Washington would want to write this important letter that's going to send the Constitution? It's speaking for Washington. And the answer is, just by way of background, Hamilton was the go-to. It was almost a habit. Hamilton would write for Washington. Hamilton could, I won't say read his mind, but the, the, the two had an affinity of working so closely together as they did for so many years. And here's a, one, probably one of my famous quotes, that I'm going to, my most favorite quotes I'm going to read tonight. This is a quote from George Washington Park Custis. And does anyone want to take a guess who George Washington Park Custis is? It's the last name Custis. So th this is. Uh, you Mark got me Washington. there. Get it. <laughs> no, I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> I... So George Washington never had any kids, right? But he did have, when I say kids, he never had any of his own kids. But he did basically adopt Martha Washington had kids. So George Washington Park Custis is. Washington's grandson, but not biologically, his grandson through Martha Washington. 
So this was a young kid who would you know, be around uh, with Washington. And this is a great quote. Let me read it to you. So according to George Washington Park Custis, who was a kid during the war, when a dispatch arrived for Washington in the middle of the night, and here's the quote, there would be heard in the calm, deep tones of that voice, so well remembered by the good and brave in the old days of our country's trial, the command of the chief to his now watchful attendant, call Colonel Hamilton. So you just imagine, right, it's late in the night, an important dispatch comes, you know, the, the British are marching on another location or whatever the problem is. What does Washington do when he gets a note? He says in his calm, deep voice, call Colonel Hamilton. So I'm trying to make the argument that now we're at the Constitutional Convention and Hamilton is being called upon yet again by Washington to write a very important letter. So long story short, it's, it's clear that Washington and Hamilton were partners in war and peace. And uh, I, I use I'm sort of combining together some famous quotes. When I say they were indispensable partners in war and peace for over two decades, I'm combining the, the famous quote by Light Horse Henry Lee, and the motto of the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society uh, to say that they were indispensable in war and peace for over two decades. And I'm going to quote now from Ron Chernow, because Chernow did a biography of Hamilton. He also did a biography of Washington. And in the Chernow biography of Washington, he describes how the two men were shaped by the same wartime experiences. They shared the same basic concerns about the country's political structure, especially the shortcomings of the Articles of Confederation. And that was your question earlier, Manny. What were the problems with the Articles? Why was New York misbehaving? Yes. And you know, New York thought it was behaving. The problem was the country was coming apart. So Hamilton and Washington agreed there were these shortcomings of the Articles of Confederation. We can talk another night about Shays' Rebellion. We can talk about the commercial disputes. The states were treating each other as enemies in some respects. So Hamilton and Washington saw the problems, <laughs> and they wanted a powerful central government. This is, again, quoting from Ron Chernow that would bind the states into a solid union, restore America's credit, and create a more permanent army. And, you know, if, if the states couldn't agree with each other, then they become easy pickings for the French, probably not the French, but the British, uh, the Spanish, and there are issues along the Mississippi River. So you know, if the states can't get along with each other, then you can pick them apart if you're another European power. So that was one of the concerns that Hamilton and Washington had. So before I go into some more examples, and I'm going to mention the XYZ affair, and I'm going to mention the quasi-war with France, and while well, I take a drink of water, do you want to mention if you remember what the XYZ affair is and what the Quasi War was? Well, I think the XYZ affair was a uh, X, Y, and Z were uh, agents, the names of agents. And uh, when that came out, I think that embarrassed uh, Washington. And because it was a case, early case of executive privilege where he didn't want to disclose. Uh, what uh, correspondence with agents that were negotiating with uh, England. Uh, the other point, the, the quasi-war with France, was that uh, Washington and Hamilton uh, did not want to go to war on behalf of France. At that time, France and Great Britain were on opposite sides because of the French Revolution. And Washington in particular and the other Federalists wanted to not, you know, they didn't want to get into another war. They thought it was too young of a nation. To go into a war. On the other hand, Jefferson and some of his colleagues were uh, favored France. Uh, so that was part of the conflict then. Adams uh, was an anti-France president. He, he succeeded uh, Washington. And then uh, in 1800, of course, Jefferson became president. So that is a good lead-in, and we could spend lots of time, and we did in prior evenings, talk about the XYZ affair and the quasi-war. But in a nutshell, 
Washington and Hamilton did not want to get caught up in European disputes. And when the French Revolution happened and Britain and France are fighting and then Europe breaks out in war, they put in place a policy of neutrality. And uh, Jefferson and some of the Democrat Republicans wanted to side with France. Washington and Hamilton wanted to be neutral. And the problem was that once we showed our neutrality, then the French started attacking us and the British started attacking us in some respects or seizing ships. And uh, the, the point here is that the XYZ affair led to uh, what's referred to as the quasi-war, where we're engaged in naval engagements or naval battles with the French, which was unfortunate because they were our allies during the Revolutionary War. And this is during Adams' administration. And Adams, as you pointed out, did not want to fight with France. And the, the, the point here is that... Um, the point. the point is that because Adams had no military experience and we were ramping up to go to war with France, this is around 1798-1799, Adams calls upon Washington to become commander-in-chief again. So he's brought out of retirement yet again to be in charge of the army. And Washington at this point is pretty old. And due to his age, he didn't want to go into the field. And Washington's condition was, yes, I will take over command of the Continental Army or whatever you want to call it, the, the new National Army, that they're, they're reconstituting and rebuilding on one condition. Anyone want to take a guess what Washington's condition was to come out of retirement? If he's going to be in charge of the army, who's he going to want as his number two? The lion. The lion. So here, due to his advanced age, I'm now quoting from my website, due to his advanced age, Washington had no intent to take the field unless actual hostilities broke out. Washington insisted that Hamilton be appointed second in command at the rank of major general. So during the war, he was a lieutenant. As, uh, as the aide-de-camp to Washington, he was only a lieutenant. But during this period, 1798, as we're ramping up to go to war with France, and thankfully we avoided war with France, uh, so during this time frame, when Washington comes back to be in charge of the army, he insists that I will do it as long as Hamilton gets promoted to be the major general, which is right below the commander-in-chief. And Hamilton was promoted over all the other generals who during the war were senior to Hamilton. That created some friction. But nevertheless, it makes the point that Hamilton had, or I should say Washington, had total confidence in Hamilton. And now, now I'm quoting you know, Ron Chernow. Yes. Chernow says that Hamilton's appointment was a precondition for Washington to come out of retirement. So that tells you how close their relationship was. So by that time, Hamilton had been practicing law and uh, doing business in New York. So I'm not sure he would want it to or was there any condition to go back into the Army? That's, you know, we, we could spend, maybe one night we'll talk about this time period, 1798. And, yeah. uh, but Hamilton basically rebuilt the Army. And when you go to statutes and stories, when you look at some of the, the laws that I've posted on, the, the law creating the, the, the Marines and the law creating the, I'm trying to think some example, creating the, uh, what, uh, some examples, but uh, there were laws you know, reconstituting the Navy and building more ships. Mm -hmm. This was all done under this time period where we were ramping up to go to war with France. And again, we had naval hostilities, but we never had a land war with France because Washington was able to work it out. And uh, that was the Treaty of Morfontaine that was reached in 1800. So we were able to watch quick aside, and we're totally off the subject of the cover letter. But uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm listening. I still. And I want the audience to, to, to feel compelled about this issue. How compelling is the cover letter to what will later become the convincing factor to sign the Constitution? That's the part that I'm, I'm listening to, to learn myself. I'm just like an audience member. But if the, who wrote it and uh, is so important, then what is the compelling— what is, maybe, you should, you, maybe you should just read all five paragraphs and we can just decide on our own. 
So, Manny, let me respond this way. The, the way I've addressed this, and it's, it's a project I've been working on during the period of quarantine. You know, different people do different things. I've been focusing, of course, getting work done, but also on, on the research on this, what I think is a very interesting historical question. So part one is where I tee up, and we talked about it last week. What is the cover letter? What does it say? Why is it important? Part two is who wrote the cover letter. Part three goes into more detail, and that's what I'll be working on for, well, I haven't written it yet, but part three gets into mm. real, how, how the cover letter plays itself out over history, because it wasn't just for the Constitution. The cover letter was later quoted during the uh, during the 1828 uh, period. This is when we, we had what was called the nullification crisis in South Carolina. It came up again prior to the Civil War. So the themes in the cover letter have repeated in American history, and it's an important document. So part three talks about that. And there's going to be a part four, which we don't have to do on the radio, but part four on the website is going to give additional questions that I want historians to further research, because there are lots of loose threads that can be tied together. Uh, but here I'm making the point that Hamilton and Washington were very close, and I'm also going to make the point that um, Hamilton realized, because New York was going to be such a struggle, that he needed this public relations campaign, and he realized that if we could have a letter signed by Washington, that and now I'm going to talk about some of the proofs. So what are some of the proofs? Well, that no, wait, wait, wait. I, I wanted to add that, in effect, um, this cover letter was Federalist Number 1, because it was the first broadside that uh, Hamilton fired to persuade the delegates, especially in New York, to come along. And then they wrote 85 other, you know, Federalist uh, papers. But it, it's like this was Federalist uh, 1.0. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful statement. I've not seen anyone use that. That's, I, I might borrow from that. Yeah, yeah, everybody it's leading up to it. It's leading yep. up to what's coming next, the Federalist Papers. So the Federalist Papers, they start getting written in the October-November time frame. The cover letter is signed on September 17th. But you're exactly right, that the cover letter is the introductory salvo of what is eventually going to become the Federalist Papers. And yep. you know, a couple months ago, we, we talked about how both the Democrats and the Republicans were citing very extensively during the impeachment debate to the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers are very important when it comes to understanding how government works and the theory of government. You know, it's one of the American contributions to this notion of democracy and, and the, the theory of, uh, of how government and democracy fit together. So, you know, I, I completely yeah. agree. This should be like a prologue. That's a wonderful description. Wonderful description. So let me talk about the committee. So historians, and here I'm going to refer to Professor William Keener and Treener. So William Treener uh, makes the point, this is a recently published 2019 uh, article that was written, uh, I want to say one of the Yale magazines, a Yale, uh, the Yale Law Journal, where he talks about what the committees were at the Constitutional Convention. Because lawyers want to know how is the Constitution written and what does it mean, how does it fit together. And interestingly, that all the other committees had a, a kind of a balance. They, had, they were built to set up compromise. So you had members from the different states, so there was regional diversity on the committees at the Constitutional Convention. You also had a diversity between nationalists and I don't want to call them states' rights supporters, but those that were pro-strong federal government and those that were less pro. And that's different between a nationalist and someone who's not a strong nationalist. So the point is that the, con the committees at the convention were, were purposely set up to facilitate compromise, because if they couldn't compromise, they couldn't do a constitution. If they couldn't do a constitution, the, the, the articles were coming.
coming apart at the seams, and there was concern that we'd break into these regional groups, and the Confederation would call up, fall apart, and the states would engage in you know, active warfare. So the compromise is very important. They were proud of the compromises that they reached. But the point here is that when you look at the Committee on Style, the committee that we talked about at the beginning of the hour, the Committee on Style, and this is a quote, to an astonishing degree, was nationalist in its orientation. So historian Forrest McDonald broke down of the 55 delegates who attended the convention, 14 were strong nationalists. So that's Hamilton, that's Washington, that's Madison, strong nationalists, 14 out of the 55, right? But four of the five members of the committee on style were strong nationalists, and not just strong nationalists, but they were the leading nationalists. So this committee, which does the formal draft of the Constitution, and this is the committee we talked about, the committee on style, was the leading most nationalist of the nationalists. So these are the folks who would want Hamilton to write this letter because they all agreed they're preaching to the choir, in other words, on the need for a strong central government to get the job done. So here's another quote that not only was the Committee on Style composed of nationalist voices, it was very precisely composed of the leading nationalist voices at the convention. And Hamilton, when you categorize the different speeches that were given, the most nationalist speech, in other words, the speech that gave the most power or wanted the strongest, most robust, most energetic federal government, was a speech that Hamilton gave on June, June 16th. So that's the committee that creates this letter, and I think they delegated it to Hamilton. And I think Hamilton, Hamilton told them that we need to use this letter as the opening salvo or the preamble to the Constitution or what you call the preface, Ed, which I think is beautiful. So uh, let me give you another quote that these are the five members in the committee, but what is the relationship between Hamilton and Morris? And this is another great quote, I think. So the closest tie on that committee was between Morris and Hamilton. There was a natural bond between these two outgoing, witty New Yorkers. They were both lawyers. They were both educated at Columbia. Back then it was King's College. They had similar politics and a common interest in finance. The two had worked together during the Revolutionary War when Hamilton was aide-de-camp to Washington, and Morris was a member of the Continental Congress who would inspect the military. Hamilton revered the slightly older Morris for his intelligence and prescience, and the two established a strong friendship. They worked closely together where Hamilton was in Congress and when Morris was the assistant secretary or assistant superintendent of finance. So they had a very close working relationship. And if Hamilton had said to Morris, let me write the letter, Morris would have had no problem letting Hamilton do it, even though Morris was the one who will agree did the final version of the Constitution. Is that making sense so far? Uh, <laughs> we're just we're building up, yep. Manny. We're building up. <laughs> you guys, you know, I think it's attorney talk, quite frankly. You guys are leaving me dizzy here. That's going. Uh, are you guys going to give me, like, the closing statement? What was the purpose of the cover letter? And why the secrecy? Uh that you you made pretty clear why Hamilton didn't want to, uh, you know, he didn't want the heat going back to New York about being the author of the letter, but you know, the the fact that that, that George is signing off on this letter uh, can't it always be refuted that who wrote it? Uh, there was kind of deniability, or is it already assumed that Hamilton was going to be writing everything that that George Washington would put out publicly? So these are good questions, and I want people to go to the website or just Google it, because if you Google it, you can get the letter, or you can do it through statutesandstories.com. It, it is only five paragraphs, and I, I think the letter will speak for itself. It tells could you, what could, could, you re- could you read the five paragraphs in the last nine minutes? No, 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 no. Why? Because we'll do it justice. But what I'm going to do now? Is I think I think so. I think I'm if I'm if I'm if there's a mystery to me about what these cover, what this cover letter actually means and its importance. Maybe we should read it. Well, 
you have been, you're not a lawyer, but you have been involved in some legal cases. Uh, I think very often you should think about whether any of your uh, attorneys on your side or on the other side might have sent you a document. And typically, this is becoming less so these days with electronics, but typically I remember back in the 80s when I was practicing in Chicago, uh, there, you know, there would be a, a transmittal letter describing to the client what uh, what you were sending, and you know, and saying yeah, like a su- like a su- like a summary. I understand. That makes that, sense. Well, I understand that that I'm. I was assuming it was such some type of summary, but when it has to do with a, a convention and what you're about to uh, do, which is to execute the solidification of a nation, a cover letter, I think, would imply something much more than what you just described. Mm-hmm. Manny, I'm going to read the last paragraph for everybody because I think you're right. It, it makes sense for people to see it and to hear it. So I'll read the last paragraph. And I'll also, before I read it, point out to you, remember, they had been assigned the task of tweaking, of improving the articles. They were sent there to fix the articles. That's not what they did. They realized the articles were broken and could not be fixed. They came up with a brand new government. And some would argue that they acted extra-legally. In other words, that they weren't authorized to do what they were doing. So this cover letter is going to have to explain what, and they were acting secretly because they kept the door shut and everything was under wraps. They were sworn to secrecy. So this cover letter is going to introduce the Constitution to the world. It's going to explain what they were up to, why they're doing what they're doing. And let me read the last paragraph, and then I'll end the hour with the last 10 minutes or so by walking you through why I have the proof and some of the examples of how this language is Hamiltonian. Right. And the way I try to do that before I read from the letter is that there's a database of around 183 letters of the founding fathers and mothers, letters between Hamilton and Washington and Washington and Jefferson and Adams and you name it, Franklin. So because we now have all these letters, and years ago historians would have been a fantasy to be able to do word searches on the computer, but we can do that now. And by using this 183 document list of, 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 uh, of correspondence, I'm able to figure out, which is what I did, what were Hamilton phrases, what were signature Hamilton expressions that he used, which I make the argument, if you go to the website, are in this letter. So just as you could look at someone's fingerprints and at a crime scene and detect them through that kind of evidence, I argue that his fingerprints are on this cover letter based upon the words, the combinations of words, the phrases, and the ideas and arguments in the letter. So let me read the last paragraph. So the last paragraph ends that, here's the quote, that it will meet the full and entire approbation of every state is not perhaps to be expected. So that means, you know, this, this Constitution, not everyone's going to agree with it. So that it will meet the full and entire approbation or approval of every state is not perhaps to be expected, semicolon, but each will doubtless consider, comma, that had her interests been alone consulted, comma, the consequences might have been particularly disagreeable or injurious to others, semicolon. So basically that phrase is saying that uh, not everyone's going to agree, and if every state had just looked at for their own interests, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. So the consequences might have been particularly disagreeable or injurious to others, semicolon. That is liable to as few exceptions as could reasonably have been expected, we hope and believe. So we hope and believe that we've done our best to you know, work out our disagreements. I'm going to continue reading after this semicolon, that it may promote the lasting welfare. This is some of the brilliant language. That it may promote the lasting welfare of that country so dear to us all and secure her freedom and happiness is our most ardent wish. So that's the last paragraph. It's our most ardent, ardent wish that this will secure the freedom and happiness and promote the lasting welfare of that country so dear to us all. That's how it ends. 
and then it has uh, the signature. With great respect, we have the honor, sir, to be your excellency's most obedient and humble servants, George Washington president by unanimous order of the convention. So what's the point? The point is... Yeah, stay. Don't don't get up and leave. (laughs) Basically, sit down, relax. This is what we're going to do. Guys, don't get up and leave like the, the two people from New York did. That's what the Don't cover left. Leave. Take this seriously because we took it seriously. Right. And ultimately we're trying. It is our most ardent wish. Let me use that expression real quick. So what my research has demonstrated, and I write about this on the website, is our most ardent wish was an expression that Hamilton and Washington would use together. And if you're the general of the commanding army of the you know, Confederate, of whatever I call the, the, the Refusing now different wars, but the Continental Army. If you're getting your major and you're getting a letter from Washington that it is our most ardent wish, and that's from Washington. If Washington gives a wish, you follow, right? If he gives a ardent wish, you follow that. If it's our most ardent wish, you know that that's almost code. If Washington sends a letter that it's our most ardent wish that you advance on this position or that you, uh, you know, do X, Y, and Z, you follow. So that terminology was used. In Washington letters, and I'll, I'll prove it to you if I can just find it in my notes. So the expression, most ardent wish, here it is. My most ardent wish is an example of a signature Washington phrase. That last sentence in the cover letter ends with the statement that we hope and believe that it may promote the lasting welfare of the country so dear to us and secure the freedom and happiness is our most ardent wish. So I make the point that arguably if Washington right, expressed his ardent wish, people were expected to listen carefully, right? And if he says his most ardent wish, you better pay attention. So how do I make that point? And the answer is that that, that phraseology was used, as we said, in multiple examples of letters that Hamilton wrote for Washington. And Hamilton knew, you know, what Washington wanted to say and would translate things into Washington speak. Here's another example. Friends of our country was in that paragraph. So friends of our country was used in, let's say this is the Hamilton authorship thesis, that was used in Hamilton's essay in 1774. It was called the Full Vindication Essay. Uh, and, And this phrase, friends of our country, was almost a Hamilton pseudonym. He signed his articles as a friend to America. Another article he signed, a sincere friend to America. So when he uses the expression friends of our country, in a way, that's Hamilton referring to Hamilton, because Hamilton would write as a friend to America or a sincere friend to America. So I'm trying to make connections between Hamilton's writing, Washington's writing, and the letter, and you can't make that connection with Rupert Morris or Madison. When you do these word searches for these phrases, you don't get hits for Hamilton. I'm sorry. You don't get hits for Morris or for Madison. You get hits for Hamilton. These words recur that they were used prior to the letter, then they were used after the letter by Hamilton and by Washington. Let me give one other example because we're getting close to the top of the hour. Okay. Let's see. The way that – what's a good one to use? Uh, let's see. I will use – and I encourage people to go to the website because we, we walk through interest and safety here. This expression, interest and safety, was used 37 times in the database. Of the five members of the committee and style, Hamilton uses that expression, interest and safety, 11 times. Washington uses it a handful of times, and those are probably written by Hamilton. There are no other records that Madison, Morris, Rufus King, or Johnson use that expression. And that's what I do on the website, is I show that this terminology that's used in this letter is signature Hamilton language. It doesn't fit with the other founders. And that made sense, because Hamilton needed a cover letter signed by Washington that would sell in New York. Last point that I mentioned Yates and I mentioned Lansing, who were the other two New York delegates who left in July. They had raised several objections. And the cover letter 
systematically responds to those objections by the New York delegates. It doesn't respond to objections by the Virginians, by the... Oh, there you go. That's probably the biggest evidence in the whole case, that it's uh, Hamilton getting, you know, taking a slight or, 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 or sliding his fellow delegates. So uh, there you go, Manny. So that, that argument you like. So forgetting about the words... Yeah, it's, it's, uh, by the way, it's very New Yorker. <laughs> it's very New Yorker to slight each other publicly. So he's, he's using the cover letter signed by Washington to refute the objections by his co-delegates from New York who left in, in the early July time frame. But what else can I add? At the end of the piece, if you go to the website, everybody, there are miscellaneous arguments that I make, and I encourage people to. Uh, I, we can't cover it all tonight. Uh, there's campaign literature and how often you get to look at, you know, people hate receiving junk mail, right? Uh, and we're going to start getting a lot of junk mail from whatever political party you belong to. But how often do you get to read on the computer uh, political mailing and political propaganda and political campaign literature uh, for the Federalist candidates because they have it on the website? And you can see the Federalists, when they started doing the ratification battle, would quote to this, and this gets to the importance of the cover letter. So they would quote to and use some of this terminology and language in their campaign literature, taking it from the cover letter. So um, these are some of the arguments. I, you know, I want people to make their own decisions, because I, again, I, I think I have an uphill battle, because it's in Morris's handwriting, but a lawyer would say it's not dispositive whose handwriting it's in. I want to know who authored it, and that's the thesis that we were talking about tonight. Who wrote the cover letter? And my answer is it was written by Hamilton. It may have had input from Morris and from the other committee members, but in my opinion, it's pure Hamiltonian, and I invite everyone to go familiarize yourself, listen to what Manny said, read the cover letter, digest it, see if you agree with it, and then uh, see if you agree with the thesis, which I'm calling the Hamilton authorship thesis, that it was written by none other than Alexander Hamilton. I think a good argument is the turns of phrase that are used are common to Hamilton. That's a strong argument. I kind of like my theory, the sliding. New Yorkers like to go after each other in public. No, no. And and if he went after his... Very civil city. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And uh, you seen it on 9/11. <laughs> yeah, the it was very civil. Yeah, and New Jersey was screaming from the rooftops, uh, you know, yeah. uh, standing ovation, celebrating. Oh my God! Remember when Trump said that? Well, anyway, that's to change the story. So that's the end of our statutes and stories uh, segment for the cover letter of the U.S. Constitution, and let the, let it let the public be aware there is a little lion out there, and the claws are everywhere. Take care, my friends. Stay free. Thank you guys for the participation. And, thank you. And thank you, everybody on the Facebook family uh, who's celebrating my mom's life. And, uh, you know, the show must go on. This is radio. And uh, and this is freedom. And this freedom of speech. And you guys did a good job today, folks. So th- thank you for the Statues and Stories segment today. Thank you, Manny. Stay free, my friends. I think it's time for uh, George Thurgood. Uh, considering that neither one of you two like him, or do you want Jimi Hendrix? What, what would you like instead? Hendrix, Hendrix. Hendrix it is. Stay free, folks. This is WSQF Blink Radio. <laughs>